sometimes horses with the most severe lesions that we visualize with the gastroscope may have the minimal symptoms and vice versa. So it continues to intrigue us. And sometimes a very mild ulcer in an area, although we treat it, the horse owners will call and or send a text, hey, doc, I've got my horse back. So it's always amazed me that just a few lesions in the stomach, when treated appropriately, these horses make a significant comeback and a significant improvement. on the rail at a jog please on the rail at a jog hello everyone we're back with another episode of on the rail podcast today's hot topic i think everyone will take a lot of notes and prepare the pencils we are talking about equine gastric health with dr scott hancock today So, Scott, I'll let you kind of introduce yourself and what you're currently doing. Well, thank you for allowing me to do this. It's an honor to be here, and this is a topic that I'm very passionate about. My background, I grew up in Kentucky, spent most of my boyhood years near Louisville, Kentucky, so was lucky enough to work with some vets at Churchill Downs and went on to school at UK and then to veterinary school at Auburn. And have been active in practice for geez over 25 years, and then joined Beringer Ingelheim Animal Health as a professional service veterinarian. So I've had a really good journey, met a lot of great folks, and I would do the same thing all over again. Do you strictly work for Beringer Ingelheim, or do you have your own practice, or kind of what's your day-to-day job look like right now? Beringer Ingelheim, it requires a lot of travel. We cover regions, but often we do what's called cross-pollination. We're allowed the benefit of going to other areas, maybe Wyoming occasionally or Montana. or And that, that really adds value to it because we get a total perspective of how things are done across the U.S. And with that, the schedule's pretty busy. We jump on and off a lot of airplanes. We're in a lot of towns and hotels. We have a lot of lunch and learns and breakfast meetings. And then we do a lot of horse owner meetings. And then we also do some continuing education meetings for fellow practitioners, which are a lot of fun to engage in these topics and share ideas. So with that being said, I have a few clients that are friends. I might look at a horse, but I'm fairly unreliable because I'm gone a lot. So they sort of have to wait for a Saturday where I am available to to look at something with them and for them. So with your role there at Ingleheim, how did you come about to being so passionate with the equine gastric health and ulcers and that type of thing? Was that something you started years and years ago or it occurred just through your experience there at the company or... What happened? Well, honestly, we go way, way back as a young boy at Churchill Downs. You know, a lot of these thoroughbreds that were in heavy training, they were sort of tough to work on. Most of us kids were called grooms. And so we would go in and clean stalls and sort of work on these horses. And a lot of them were really ill-tempered. In fact, you could go down the shed row and Sometimes their ears were back and they'd show their teeth or they'd breach you to stall with their rear end. And, and I, w- I grew up with horses and was probably a decent horseman for a young age, but still had enough sense to fear some of these behaviors. And I remember an older trainer, he knew I wanted to be a veterinarian. And he said, I hope your generation will figure out what's causing these behavioral issues. I think there's pain somewhere that we can identify. And I don't think phenobut, which was sort of the only pain-killing drug back then, 
penal butte sure doesn't seem to help it. And I remember him distinctly saying that. And then you see these colts and fillies uh, go through layups when they leave the track and they need to rest. Maybe there's an injury. Maybe they just need to unwind and get home to a farm. And they returned to the farm and they were just a different personality often. They were outside kicking around. They seemed happy. When you brought them into the stall, they were a lot friendlier. And so I wondered, what is the difference between these horses that are in training and then being home on the so-called layup? So I guess that planted a seed. And then later through practice, there were several papers written in late 80s, that journal articles. Many of us were really busy in practice. And Reading journals is something that we struggle to keep up with all the articles, but there were numerous publications about gastric ulcers, and it, I think it opened a lot of our eyes up. I actually owned a surgical hospital. I had a boarded surgeon and was blessed to work with some really great veterinarians. We had trucks on the road that was called the ambulatory end of the practice, and so some nights we'd get these cases referred in, and the horse was just uncomfortable, but there wasn't anything we could hang our hat on. We just, you know, they weren't a surgical candidate, and yet clients were saying, hey, doc, I'm tired of bringing this horse in every three or four weeks, and you guys need to figure out what's wrong. Well, we just didn't have any way back then until articles started being published about endoscopy, actually using a long scope, and we call it gastroscopy. So that, to me, that was a game changer. It was fascinating to me. You know, if we see a snake bite on the outside of a horse or a major barbed wire cut or a laceration, we visually see that and we take action. But if we don't know what's going on in that stomach, we're sort of clueless. And Having that ability to look inside, having that ability to give a more thorough, complete exam, in my view, was a huge game changer in the late 80s and early 90s. It shocked all of us because it seemed like the more we looked, the more we found. That's a great segue, I think, to my next question is how prevalent are gastric ulcers in today's show and performance horses? Well, it is fascinating. The data suggests that if you had three show horses in a row and you scoped them, horses in training and being hauled for shows, at least two-thirds of them you would find ulcers in. And a lot of people would be shocked. The horse may look bright and alert and may appear to be okay, but then symptoms start appearing that just don't really make sense. And with Race horses, that's where the early instance was really uh, magnified. It, it appears that upwards of 90% or higher of horses in training, both thoroughbreds and or standard breds, and then other breeds as well, endurance horses, three-day horses, dressage horses, of course, they all fit under the umbrella of show horses, but it just appeared, geez, the more we look, the more we'll find this syndrome and how important it is to diagnose it and treat it because treatment is typically very rewarding. What are the typical signs and symptoms people should watch out for if they start noticing their horse doing to maybe look or investigate further into whether they may have ulcers? Well, there's a whole array of symptoms, but most of the things that are published and agreed on, there's there's either a weight loss or loss of appetite. I find it interesting sometimes, like on a racetrack where I, I frequently visit, sometimes these horses will go out and smell the grain and kind of back off a little bit, and they may eat the hay, and we'll explain a little bit why that happens later. Also, poor body condition, a dull hair coat. May not always happen, but some of these horses, severe cases, they may or may not have this. Probably the number one complaint we get is actually poor performance. And that's, Doc, he ain't doing right. This horse is a little ring sire. Just a little bit, his whole behavior, his demeanor's changed. He's a little sensitive in his abdomen. We call that abdominal sensitivity. So when you're tightening up the girth on your saddle, they kind of swing their head back. 
and want to bite you. The ears go back, and, and this horse is telling you, geez, I'm hurting. Look at me. And then for me, when we owned a surgical facility and actually did college surgery, some of these referrals that came in, there's what we were called mild recurrent colleagues. These horses that just sort of backed up in the stall, heart rate might have been just barely elevated, couldn't find anything on a rectal exam, blood work was normal. We kind of scratch our heads and wonder what in the world is going on. And of course, the owners relied on us to make an accurate diagnosis, which we really weren't capable of doing prior to the advent of gastroscopy. And then the overall change in attitude. So many clients will say, this is just not the same horse. It just seems like he's not in good humor, very temperamental, and that these are some of the common complaints that we would hear. If a horse becomes senchy, all of a sudden, is that almost a guarantee they could have, or I don't want to say could have, do have something going on? Well, you know, that can be variable. You know, some horses behaviorally can sort of be tough. But if we see that, it's certainly a good reason to scope these horses. The idea is to rule it out. We want to know, you know, the luxury of scoping these horses is we can rule out these stomach issues as something contributing to the behavioral or the apparent lameness or the abnormality that we may be seeing. So yeah, I think, you know, a lot of trainers just say they get a little cinchy. It's interesting to me, these horses, you get them out, you jog them in arena. If they have ulcers, that acid that's in the bottom of their stomach is splashing up and burning these ulcers. And you'll see this pattern in them. They're just a little bit reluctant to go forward. Standard bred people, you know, I've had some trotting horses in the standard bred breed and they'll say, Doc, this horse is losing its trot. And geez, you scope some of these and it's amazing the ulcers we find in them. And it's no reason that the trotting off is, is sort of uncomfortable because that acid is splashing up on these ulcers and causing pain. And again, we can't see this till we scope them. One thing we didn't touch on just in the beginning, which I feel like we probably should have was when you talk about ulcers in the stomach, can you give us a maybe like Cliff's Notes version for, you know, us just average educated horse owners, what's actually happening in the stomach? Sure. That's a good point. Well, you know, the stomach's pretty unique in a horse and we kind of divide it into three areas. The upper part is the squamous mucosa. And then there's a little boundary or border, if you will, all the way around the inside of the stomach that separates it from the glandular, the lower part of the stomach where this acid is made. And then on the glandular side, that actually empties into the duodenum, what we call it the pylorus, the opening into the duodenum. So... When we look at this, a horse with a normal stomach, the squamous has a smooth, kind of a whitish appearance. The glandular is kind of normally a reddish appearance, but we do see these significant lesions. We really don't call them ulcers down in the glandular area, but lesions. And we describe those lesions with certain terminology in our records so we know positionally where they are follow-up examination. And when we talk about this squamous, we grade them one through four with zero being no problems, ones being very, very mild, maybe a little hyperkeratosis, little yelling of the inside lining, sort of like a callus on a farmer's hand. It sort of tells a story. And of course, with, with the number four grade being really severe, might see a little blood, might even see an indication of an infection, like an open sore. So that's what happens. Interesting, average horse makes about 16 gallons of acid a day, and that's made down in the glandular area of the stomach. And that's just part of the normal design. And that's what we're struggling against in managing these horses 
that are on a show circuit or in heavy training and kept up in the stall, et cetera. So it's these procedures we try to do and recommendations to help once we get the ulcers treated appropriately, it's the steps we take to try to manage and or prevent further incidents of these ulcers. So my question was going to be, I know we've talked about it a little bit and finding the ulcers, but can you kind of tell us what scoping is in general and what that procedure kind of entails? Yes, ma'am. Well, the endoscope, we call it a, they used to be fiber optic and they were the older models and now they're actually a chip camera. So this is like a long stomach tube, if you will, with a camera in it. And there's cables along the way that we control the dials on the outside that allow us to kind of drive it around up and down and right and left. So typically we would have the horse fasted for 12 to 14 hours. And that would involve no grain or hay for 12 to 14 hours. So typically, ideally, a horse would put them in a stall that maybe has rubber mats only with no bedding. And or if they put them in a stall and perhaps there's bedding, as we all know, hungry as a horse is an accurate term because these horses will eat anything. Sometimes they'll eat their shavings. Sometimes they'll eat the corner of the stall. And unfortunately, sometimes they'll even consume their feces in the stall. So we do like to either muzzle if we're in a situation like that, put them in a stall with a muzzle, or if it's a stall like concrete blocks and just has rubber mats, we seem to get away fine with that. But fasting is paramount because we don't want a lot of material in the stomach so we can do a really thorough view and get a good exam. Now, as far as water's concerned, we like to withhold the water three to four hours if we can. So if we're doing an eight o'clock scoping appointment, we try to get the help to remove the bucket around 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. And so we don't want a whole lot of water in there as well. So it's fasting. So we sedate these horses mildly and we pass the tube, they swallow it, of course it goes down the esophagus, just like a stomach tube, and we drive it on down, we go through a cardia, there's a little bit of resistance at the opening of the stomach, and then when we actually get in the stomach, we actually inflate the stomach and try to expand the walls of it to give us a whole lot more peripheral view. And so the stomach is inflated, to kind of follow that Margot Proclatus, that's kind of the midline, the border, if you will, between the squamous above and the glandular below. So we sort of drive our scope around that Margot and line ourselves up, and then we make an approach down into the pylorus. So we usually go down into the glandular area, the pylorus, and then actually enter the duodenum, that portion of the small intestine, which can reveal some interesting pathology there as well. So that's the normal procedure. And then we come back up out of the duodenum into the squamous, look around that area, take lots of snapshots, pictures, which we can record on our computers. And then we go back up and do a real thorough exam of the squamous. And when the exam is completed, we try to get up towards the top of the stomach, if you will, and then we deflate it. We're actually removing the air that we put in there. So the stomach is deflated, and then we just actually pull our gastroscope out. We get a really good view of the esophagus on our way out, and then the exam is completed. The beauty of it is the software that we have, we can make videos and our still pictures, and it's dated with a horse's name and the time and the owner's name. That's really important if we wanna do a sequential follow-up exam on those cases to evaluate how our therapy is working. So it's really a simple procedure, takes about 20 to 30 minutes, certainly can go faster if we're, we're kind of pushing it, but 20 to 30 minutes total 
is a reasonable time frame. And then the horses are put back in the stall. We might fast them another half hour or so, and then they can go back to their normal diet. Horses have ulcers in their hindgut that you can't access with a scope? Yeah, and that's a million-dollar question. We get that asked all the time, and, and so I wish we knew more about that, but we don't have scopes long enough to go that far, nor could we drive them back there. There's a whole lot of unknown science about these so-called hindgut ulcers. Unfortunately, sometimes it's a post-mortem exam. Maybe when a horse passes from some other reason, a pathologist may notice lesions back there that none of us were aware of. But mainly when we're talking about EGUS, the equine gastric ulcer syndrome, we're predominantly referring to the squamous, the glandular, and then the first couple inches of the duodenum, the small intestine. And that's pretty much our limitation. Have you personally seen difference in signs and symptoms of a stomach ulcer condition versus a hindgut ulcer condition, or can they present the same? Well, they could possibly present the same. Sometimes with hindgut ulcer conditions, some people will say perhaps there may be an anemia show up. You know, in my generation years ago, phenolbut, a painkiller, was often abused. It was the only painkiller out there and excessively high levels of that could have caused lesions either in the squamous part of the stomach or perhaps contributed to some of these hindgut lesions. But with horses with stomach ulcers proper, whether it's the squamous or the glandular, we see these typical recurrent repeat symptoms that we've previously discussed. However, It's really interesting to note there's really no correlation between the severity of lesions that we visualize with our gastroscope and symptoms. Sometimes horses with the most severe lesions that we visualize with the gastroscope may have the minimal symptoms and vice versa. So it continues to intrigue us and sometimes a very mild ulcer in an area. Although we treat it, the horse owners will call and or send a text, hey doc, I've got my horse back. So it's always amazed me that just a few lesions in the stomach when treated appropriately, these horses make a significant comeback and a significant improvement. Do you see evidence of horses suffering from like a gastric reflex disease like humans do? where the bottom of their esophagus has lesions? Not as much. That's a great question. You know, horses typically don't vomit. They have a pretty tight sphincter there. We call it the cardia. It's it's where the esophagus ends and it sort of opens up into the stomach. And so they have a tight sphincter there by design. So horses don't typically have a gastric reflux like you and I may have if we eat a lot of spicy food late one night and you catch yourself having to sort of sit up in bed because of that acid that burns your throat that we are refluxing. I mean, we can reflux a horse with a stomach tube. If he's got a blockage behind his stomach and he's filling up, we can pass a tube and sometimes these horses are relieved because we'll be able to pull a little fluid off the stomach that's building up there. But typically, they don't have this reflux and vomit sensation that humans have. That's good to know. I think one thing I always kind of think about to myself is like, do horses get headaches? And do they have stomach aches like we can or like said, gastric reflex? But so the reflex, probably not. At least we can rule that one out. Yeah, the (laughs) reflux typically, yeah, wouldn't be a symptom. Typically, yeah. So a lot of this, I know Jenna is more in depth with the science and all the terminology and stuff, but as far as like what your company's done, can you kind of go over, you know, the contributions that they've done for the gastric health so far? Well, we, it was interesting. They created this EGIS market back in 1998. Uh, certainly was practicing way before that. And We were really limited. Our modalities of therapy were pretty weak. And 
most of the therapies we used ideally would have you probably had to give them three or four times a day. But that was the best thing we knew until research proved that omniprazole, a product, would be an effective treatment. And so our company created this market back in 1998 with the launch of a product called GastroGuard, and it was for treatment. And then around 2004, they launched another great product called UlcerGuard, and it's marketed for prevention. And so we've contributed, the company itself supported a lot of research to find out new and better ways to identify and treat both squamous and glandular ulcers. We're really fortunate. We truly have a subject matter expert on our team, Dr. Hoyt Cheremy, and he's a boarded surgeon that's worked for us for a lot of years. He's approaching 4,500 gastric scopings, gastroscopies. No one in the nation that I know has hit that number. And he's really a huge nuclear weapon for all of us that scope. And I know a lot of veterinarians call on him shooting cell phone pictures from the screens. Hey, doc, I've got this particular lesion I haven't seen. And he remains a tremendous resource. And so I feel very blessed to be on a team of professional service veterinarians with him. And we all rely on him heavily for his support and 14 plus years experience in this field. So that's really important. Our company sponsors, we do thousands of these veterinary and horse owner educational events. Over the last 20 years, we've developed a 3D glass stomach. We took a stomach out of a horse that had a catastrophic injury, you know, post-mortem after he was euthanized. And had it preserved and then created a glass model of the stomach. So horse owners could kind of visualize what it looks like and how this acid splashes up. I really have enjoyed using that model and it helps us to stress some of the management uh, procedures, like simply like giving a half a flake of hay 45 minutes before turning the horse out or taking him into the show ring or just taking him into the arena to practice because that acid is that's built is splashing up and down. And we know if we treat these ulcers, a great preventative measure is to make sure they have a little hay that forms a mat and prevents this acid from splashing up. Now, the added benefit, if it would be alfalfa hay, is sort of like giving these horses a It's a source of calcium and it's very beneficial. So we've done a lot of research. We've been involved in a lot of publications that we've supported. And it's really been fun to see this thing progress from the early years when we knew little about it to the knowledge level they have now based on a lot of data and studies. It's a great time to be a veterinarian and the science is really intriguing. I know we routinely see people commenting about they will get compounded omeprazole or different drugs that they swear or think treats their horses ulcers or keeps them at bay. What's your opinion and what are your suggestions on whether or not it's, you know, a good idea to stick with the FDA approved versions? That is an Excellent question. And the truth of it is, you know, I get to scope a lot of horses as well as there's four or five of us in our practice that are allowed to scope horses as Beringer Ingelheim of professional service veterinarians. And we continue to scope these horses. And, you know, sometimes the veterinarians, and they're all great folks, or the owners of these horses, great folks, they'll say, you know, my brother in law is a pharmacist. He read on GastroGuard that it's just a miprazole. Heck, I can buy the powder and kind of make you a home brew, and the home brews don't work. It's the way the molecule is created. This medication has to be able to go down in the stomach and endure all that massive amount of acid without being changed or broken down and actually go through into the pylorus and into the duodenum 
And it's at the duodenum where it actually breaks down by design, enters the bloodstreams, and that circles back to the lower part of the glandular part of the stomach where all these acid-producing glands are, and it stops the acid. So the truth of it is the gastrogard does not really heal the ulcer. What it does when you stop that production of acid, these ulcers will heal on their own. So I go to racetracks. They open up their medical cabinets. I've seen as many as 40 different so-called miracle drugs for equine ulcers, from aloe vera to, to a whole array. Some of the names they're given is clever, really brilliant marketing. It's enticing. You'd think surely that would work, but I scope them and they're still got ulcers and they'll say, yeah, doc, but it was half the cost. That's where you have to think of value worth versus cost. What value is it if it's even free, if it's not working? When we look at the training cost and the cost of ownership, having a problem like this that can be treated efficaciously, efficaciously with a drug that, that is proven to work and has the data and the science behind it versus a hopeful low-cost product that's not very effective. We deal with that almost weekly. And so we'll scope them and they'll, they might have been on some kind of recipe for a month or two and they still have ulcers. So it, it's a continual battle, but I think the word's out among horsemen and they see the results that they get when they use an FDA licensed product designed to be effective for horses. And it's, it's not a difficult sale at all when they see the science and the efficacy, how well it performs. So if I'm not mistaken, and please correct me here, but it sounds like if you're doing a meprazole in the form of gastrogard or ulcergard versus maybe a compounded meprazole, it's like, yes, the drug itself may be the same, but the mechanism on how it's packaged and delivered and survives stomach acid to get to the part of the equine gastric tract that it needs to to be effective is really what sets gastrogard and ulcergard apart from a compounded drug. Is that kind of correct or? Yeah, if it breaks down in the stomach, in that acid, it does nothing. It has to get to the small intestine. And it's all in the manufacturing process that makes the unique science of how that was created and how effective it is have value for all of us. Otherwise, it's just wishful thinking and a, to me, a tremendous waste of money. Yes, yeah, so if something's having zero effect because it's rendered useless by the time it gets to said spot, then it's you're throwing more money away than you would have if you just did the FDA approved version. But so what are kind of typical treatment plans and how are they customized per horse? So you certainly have had your fair share, I'm sure, of treating these horses that have had gastric ulcers and whatnot. So how do you approach that? Typically, depending on the grade, most horses are treated for 28 days. However, some of the milder cases that we see, if we think we can alter the dose a little bit, we might go with the recommended dose for two weeks and then maybe a half a dose for two weeks. We really tailor it depending on the lesions, where they are and the severity. The protocol for this drug typically is that we'd use it for 28 days. And we're big advocates, if and when at all possible, a follow-up scoping is vital, in my opinion, to see how well they're responding. Sometimes horses with really severe lesions, sometimes those horses don't read the book. They don't read the, the directions on the gastrogard. And that at 26 days or 28 days, if you do a follow-up scoping, you'll find out they're typically they're either completely better or you'll have those horses that they look like they might need treating for another week or two. And, you know, you sort of hate to be winning the battle and realize that just another week or 10 days of treatment may get complete healing 
and these squamous lesions. And then the additional management tools that we talk about will help you handle the instance of these ulcers reoccurring. So yeah, it's kind of, we have to tailor the program based on the severity and where they're located. And what's the difference between GastroGuard and UlcerGuard? Well, honestly, they're essentially the same drug. They are omniprazole, but one is designed as a preventative. UlcerGuard has been creative in the little dose on the syringe so that owners can give a quarter of a tube for the average size horse once a day as a preventative. And we found that if it's 48 hours before a major event, before weaning, before pulling that horse away from its herd mates, before loading a trailer and going to a, to a strange horse show facility and leaving the farm, we find that most of these horses will start on 48 hours before an event, keep them on it during the event, and then when they get home and they settle in, we typically can take them off ulcer guard. So GastroGuard is for treatment. So once we get those things, those ulcers treated and they improve and respond and heal, then we use UlcerGuard as part of our management process. It's just another tool in the box because these show horses, it's just hard to totally eliminate stress. And we know that stress helps elicit this acid production and this issue. So if we can use a lower dose of this omniprazole as a preventive and keep these ulcers from reoccurring, it's a win-win. I have a off-the-wall question, maybe. Do you find some horses are more prone to the ulcers, or do you think it's commonplace and all, let's just talk about show horses, I suppose. Do you think it's more per horse or just? Yeah, I think that's another good question. Honestly, there'd be a higher instance in stable training and show horses. The instance in pasture horses, they're out there, but categorically, it'd be a much lower instance. And these horses that are running out in a pasture with their herd mates, they're getting a lot more forage in their diet lot less stressful to be a horse and to be outside than to undergo training, getting moved to a trainer, moving from a trainer to a horse show, or et cetera. So certainly see a higher instance in training horses across the board. And as far as breed, uh, there's not a real difference in breed. However, the data that Dr. Hoyt Cheremy has shared with a lot of us it seems that the glandular ulcers are not ulcers, the glandular lesions. We call them lesions down below the margo. It seems that the warm bloods are sort of unfairly represented. They tend to have more lesions in their glandular area than some of the other breeds. And honestly, that's, that's poorly understood. There's a lot of good research going on trying to understand why that is and trying to understand why these horses would have lesions down in their glandular mucosa. That is interesting that it's warm bloods. I mean, you would expect like the thoroughbreds, Arabians, more hot-blooded types for sure to be predisposed to it. But I know they're very, very common in our quarter horses, our paint horses, our stock horses too. So it's not just... And I don't want to convey that all horses don't get glandular. We still see them percentage-wise, again, a little higher instance in the warm bloods. Yeah. So kind of on the subject of how to manage or prevent these from a holistic standpoint, what are your tips on the dietary and management practices that can help reducing the risk of ulcers and show horses or glandular lesions? Yeah. Well, the key thing is, the, you know, these horses were designed to be sort of hay burners. You know, man started breaking them and training them and keeping them in barns and grooming them and feeding them high-carbohydrate feeds. And 
you know, they wanted these horses to kind of blossom. Well, they're really designed to have a sort of a constant intake forage. And when a horse chews forage, whether it's pasture or hay, they make saliva that's high in bicarbonate. So it's sort of like he's getting a, a natural source of baking soda, if you will. So the more he chews, the more bicarbonate he makes. So the process of having hay and chewing hay is beneficial to combat this acid production in the stomach. We're trying to get the acid pH to get above four so we're not irritating the lining of the stomach. And then we don't want them to go longer than two hours without hay if we can, particularly after finishing a meal. You know, I find this in areas, there's a lot of good folks out there. They have to work to support this horse. They put him in the stall. They'll give him a plate in the morning. They work all day. Maybe they have to work overtime. They get home that night. It's been too long of a window without hay. The horse is in a stall, and maybe they don't get home till 6.30, 7 at night. And these horses would have a real high incidence of ulcers. So, you know, assuring that these horses have an adequate supply of hay is really important. Some of the fat supplements are handy because we can provide calories that way without the larger amounts of grain. When horses eat grain, and I'm typically speaking, the foundation of a lot of these feeds may be like oats and corn, heavy carbohydrates. When they eat those, that almost helps stimulate the production of hydrochloric acid. So the more grain a horse eats, the more acid they produce. And so when we see these conditions, we may uh, suggest a fat supplement for the additional calories. And then something's called like a ration balancer, something high in protein, vitamins, and minerals to provide the nutrients that may not be available in the forage. And then using ulcer guard as a prevention has really been a game changer for a lot of trainers. There's a whole lot of conditioning and race horses and training horses and show horses where they're using ulcer guard in these stressful situations. Interestingly, our company got involved with something called Relax Tracks, and that's some music that is actually played. You can go on YouTube and review it, and folks will actually play this in the stall and or in the trailer. And there is a little bit of data to suggest that this does in fact have a relaxing environment on these horses and may be of some benefit. Certainly won't heal an ulcer or fix a whole ulcer, but it may be part of a program from the stress related to reduce that stress. And so if we keep hay available where they're chewing more, making more saliva, try to reduce the amount of the heavy carbohydrate in these horses. These are some of the preventative things that we can do. A couple of follow-up questions for you on that is you had mentioned the benefits of providing alfalfa hay. So, you know, we'll eliminate horses that have, you know, diagnosed metabolic diseases. We'll not address that right now. But as far as like your average, you know, maybe not hard keeper show horse type thing, What's the balance between alfalfa hay and grass hay that would still be beneficial without providing so much alfalfa that they may get chubby? Well, that's another great question. And I have to confess, our company has a really good equine nutritionist, and I've learned a lot from her. And one would think that rich, leafy green alfalfa would be rich in higher and non-structural carbohydrates or sugars. And I was dead wrong. It isn't alfalfa actually has less non-structural carbohydrates than the hay I may feed on my farm. Even sorry, grass hay, whether it's Bermuda or fescue or whatever, these grass hays, even though they don't look as rich and green, alfalfa might be a good choice of hay. And of course, we really push hay testing and to see where your hay is. But typically across the board in 
she's done a lot of studies in this area and, and has taught a lot of us veterinarians who will listen to her that surprisingly alfalfa hay has fewer non-structural carbohydrates and it's ideal because of its calcium that it brings to the table and maybe part of a armatarium that we can use to deal with these horses and ulcers. Now, I'm not saying the hay you're feeding is causing ulcers. I'm saying that if you had an EMS horse, that these metabolic horses that are high insulin and you're really watching the diet, monitoring the amount of alfalfa hay is critical, but whether you're putting it in a hay mat where the horse is actually the mats in the stall floor and they really have to work to get the alfalfa, the chewing mechanism creating more bicarbonate combined with the calcium that's in that alfalfa hay can be extremely beneficial. That's interesting. So we maybe don't need to be as afraid about alfalfa hay on some of the easier keepers than we maybe initially think. I know horses are unique. Honestly, we don't. And I, I think it's all about getting the hay tested. You know, we really need to get a little more scientific about that. What are the nutrient values of the hay we're testing? And I have witnessed different grass hays versus alfalfa hay. I was in sort of denial when I first heard that. I thought it couldn't be, but the data is there. And so I'm a believer in it. And then one more question for me on the management side of things. What's a smart use of NSAIDs with horses to not propagate ulcers and lesions, if that makes a question? That's a good question. I mean, we, you know, again, my generation years ago, we probably used and abused of phenobutazole, and that was the only really non-steroidal and inflammatory we have. It's interesting now with Equiox, viral it's a great drug because it's a targeted therapy. It, it affects the COX-2 part of the pain mechanism without hurting the blood supply to parts of the stomach, et cetera. So I would say Equiox would be the drug of choice if you have to use a non-steroidal and inflammatory, but that, you know, all of these drugs should be approved, you know, by the treating veterinarian as far as the length of time they're given and how they're used. But I'm a huge fan of that. Our, our company has that product and it's been a drug in my own private little practice that I do uh, with a few friends. It, it's been a great asset to have available versus what we had with Butte years ago. So, you know, there's Butte and Banamine and Equiox. There's a couple other, they all have a specific place, but we really have to be careful, you know, when we look at long-term use of these and show toxicity down the road. And for example, the way Butte may cause issues as far as gastric health is because it does limit the blood supply to the area? Yeah, it's, as it's prostaglandin effect, it, it may limit blood supply. You know, some of you talked about hindgut ulcers. Some people have theorized some of these high mileage campaigners, you know, a steeplechase horse that's 12, 14 years old and sort of broke down. And, you know, they used to just keep them on butte. And a lot of those horses on postmortem, they may have found lesions in the hind gut as, as well as the stomach. And, you know, one would assume it may have a correlation to excessive use of these drugs. And, and you know, that was the best we had at the time but they certainly Robin Peter to pay Paul when there's better drugs that have a little more research behind them. And, you know, the trick to veterinary medicine is the minimal effective dose. So we like to choose a dose that's effective and the minimum effective dose and use only as needed. So we, we have to respect and be careful with all these medications. So before we move off of the gastric ulcers to wrap up here, because I know we've taken almost an hour of your time, which we appreciate. I'm very curious because I was told growing up all those wives tales that the aloe vera actually, you know, helps and prevents the gastric ulcer. So I have to know what other common misconceptions about the gastric ulcers would you like to tell us that aren't true? 
That's a great question. I think gallons of it. Horses are still drenched with it, which is a comedy to me. But I certainly used it on sunburn and thought it helped, but it doesn't seem to to work there. I, I would say mainly some of the compounded products that are out there. There's some of the herbal ingredients that don't have a lot of data behind them. There's a whole array. I mean, you could name a lot of products that have been recommended. What, what the misnomer is, is that sometimes people will put them on this because they see a sign at a feed store and it may be some herbal blend and the horse has been on it for three or four months and we do a scoping and just for interest, they suggest you scope their horse and you scope it if it doesn't have ulcers. They inadvertently say, well, looky there, we've been on this magic blend of herbs and spices and our horse doesn't have ulcers. Well, maybe he didn't have them in the beginning. And I, you know, I never want to insult any horse owner, but if we don't know, that's the value of scoping, whether or not they had them, then we can measure the response to treatment. And I, as I said, the, the racetracks tonight, the they open these big metal cabinets and stuff falls out of there, out of the cabinet of all the wishful and hopeful products that they're trying and doesn't seem to be working because I'm still finding ulcers. What's your kind of biggest takeaways or advice for horse owners and trainers for maintaining optimal gastric health? They're just like the 30,000 foot view of things. It's either more turnout and hay or... yeah. I think turn out as often as we can. Let these horses be horses as often as we can. Know the stress points, you know, loading a horse up is stressful. Going to a show stressful. That horse is in the box stall with bars on each side. There's a stranger on each side, different environment. Horses on the track hear the bell ring and horses jump out of the gate. A lot of horses coming and going. Anything we can do to eliminate stress is critical. Remember, hay can be your best friend. Uh, forage is really important and our pasture. And so give these horses the opportunity as much as possible to be treated like a horse. So as much as we can, get them out of the stall at the show, let them graze a little bit outside the arena, sort of get comfortable. And then the preventative things we say, thank goodness for ulcer guard because we know it works. And gastro guard for those horses that do have ulcers, if we see the lesions and we have the experience to know how to diagnose them, we have the history and the data to know how to appropriately treat them. It, it's really, really rewarding. You know, I get to run in a lot of trainers. I might see them. A month or two later in the shed row and it's it's really nice to hear some good stories about some of these horses and how they bounce back and how they're changing the management and giving these horses a better quality of life. What lies in the future for the company in terms of research and product development and the general equine health domain? Are you privy to any of that information? They're really looking, you know, we're heavy in the PPID arena. This is the pushing horses of my generation, we would have called them Cushing's. We've got the only FDA licensed product. It's been a fantastic journey. I think it's a game changer. We recognize the instance of that. And then these metabolic horses, these high insulin horses that we're getting a better handle on managing them nutritionally, looking at insulin. I mean, many guys and girls in my in my profession for years, we're stumped. Why are these horses getting laminitic? What, what's happening here? And we're getting a better handle. The association between laminitis and insulin has been a game changer. You know, vaccines, we've got the number one vaccine in the U.S., over 20 million doses, current updated vaccine. I mean, why take these horses to a show and hope that the vaccine that you gave may protect them. If it's an outdated vaccine, they have nasal shedding or protection. Join Health, you know, we're the only company, we have three FDA licensed hyaluronic acids for, for Join Health, one for IV use, the only one 
license, FDA license for IV use, the other habis, pilovet, intraarticular use. In the respiratory arena, you know, we, whether it's through vaccines, controlling influenza and flu and strangles, et cetera, we created the first FDA licensed product for severe equine asthma. It's been a game changer. It's, it's interesting to be a part of this. It gets me excited. You know, prior, we were forced to use a lot of corticosteroids that may have immunosuppression, may or may not trigger laminitis. And so we have a product that, that has a lot of efficacy studies behind it and is gaining a lot of ground. Major game changer. I know the company down the horizon, they're getting more involved in managing these EMS forces. And there's drugs down the line I'm excited about that we won't discuss today, but I think could be game changers, even in the arena, possibly with some of these tumors that horses get. You know, it might be an opportunity. I don't know. I know a lot of us have said that that could be an interesting field to get involved in because some of these ectopic tumors, melanomas, squamous cell carcinomas, et cetera, that might be an area to enter. I'm not saying we're going there, but I, I sense there's interest there. And we have several veterinarians on our vet team that just bring a tremendous amount of real world in the field experience. And I think they come back and when we have our meetings, they bring it to the table. Hey, we really need to look at this. We need to address this and that. So our company just constantly develops, makes the effort, spends a lot of money to create these game changers. And they prove it by going through that long, expensive road of FDA approval. So it's not just hearsay or anecdotal. We have data behind us that, that shows that it works. I could nerd out for hours on all these things you just mentioned because I love, I'm not a vet by any means, but I love talking about and learning about the physiology side of things. And I do for sure personally want to stress the importance of, yes, the FDA approved drugs are more expensive, but it's because they've gone through the proper channels and approvals and testing and all of that. So yes, you are paying more, but there's more safety there too. And it's well worth it. We've taken enough of your time today, for sure. Are there any resources that you recommend out there for horse owners to maybe consult or is there anything on the Boehringer website? Kind of if people are wanting to get more educated themselves on equine gastric health or ulcers, where would you recommend they go to? Yeah, it's really simple. There's a couple WWWs, as I call them, but there's a www.gastroguard.com. You can see this fascinating information, good visuals, just a wealth of information. The same with www.ulcerguard.com is another good one. And then we have one I, I think is really interesting. It's www.theartofthehorse. And that really covers the full equine portfolio information and support. So it helps our, a horse owner get uh, information on these diseases and things that we're working with and the products that are available for it. And that is priceless to me. I find a lot of horse owners, we give a lot of horse owner talks and they'll tell me, you know, I, I was going to come to this talk. And so I went online and I really feel like I got tuned up. You all have so much information out there that that's practical for horse owners. And I, I love that. It makes me really proud to be a part of a company that keeps pioneering new products, makes that kind of contribution to the horse world. Definitely. We need to value anybody that's willing to put time and money into our crazy horse passions and keeping it afloat. So we appreciate you, Dr. Hancock and your company and everybody else that diligently donates their time and their careers into furthering equine health. Liz, you got anything before we wrap up? Nope. Very insightful. I enjoyed it. And as Jenna said, yes, thank you for your time. It's very much appreciated. Well, thank you all. Honestly, it was an honor to be here. 
I'm still so enthusiastic about this field and, and I landed in a good spot. I'm having the time of my life visiting clinicians all over the U.S. and learning from them and sharing with them. And it's all the wonderful people that I'm allowed to meet that gives my life a real rich journey. So thank you for your time as well. Awesome. Well, hopefully maybe we can reconnect in the future at an event or something in person. That would be fun. Thank you for your time. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and please take care. No, we all appreciate you. Thank you. All right, that'll be your class. Bring them in and line them up.